Amen. Good morning. Good morning, family. <clears throat> if you will, grab your Bibles and open them to the book of Ruth. We will be in our second week of the book of Ruth this morning. <clears throat> Last week, I introduced the book and talked about some of the major themes that we'll be seeing in this book and drawing our attention to. And this morning, uh, we'll actually begin to sort of make our way through the text. <clears throat> and so turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 this morning again. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. That's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take it. That is now yours. Um, and with many... hopes and prayers that you will use it. Let's read verses 1 through 5 together this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, and the, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's difficult a little bit, isn't it, to say thanks be to God for such a depressing word? Um, as we talked about last week, this, this setting that we've received here at the beginning of the book of Ruth is stark. It is dark. It is a, a very black backdrop for what will be, spoiler alert, a very beautiful brilliant story of redemption. But what we have right now is just blackness. It's just dark. It's just, ugh. Do you ever read your, your Bible and get to places like that and just be like, ugh. This is one of those places. We come here and really what we see here is literally a picture of barrenness. It is barren. Not only are there, is there no food, there's no children. It is barren. It is a wasteland that we find ourselves in here at the beginning of Ruth. In fact, that is one of the major themes that we will see is how that God loves to take His people from a place of emptiness to a place of fullness. And in order for us to see that, we have to see at the beginning here this emptiness and it is empty it is a barren wasteland we have several themes that we're going to see throughout our time in the book of Ruth one the theme of emptiness to fullness another theme that we'll be seeing this morning is the cost of disobedience the cost of disobedience but we will as we journey through this book also see God's providence and sovereignty the the theme of faithful living, and also, of course, 
what this story really is, a story of redemption. But today, what we're really going to see is this emptiness, and that, that emptiness is, it is the cost of disobedience. And that is the major theme that we'll be looking at today. Look at verse 1, just the first few words there. And we, we, drawed, we drew our attention here last week, but we're going to do it again. In the days when the judges ruled, right off the bat, we're given a hint into what kind of time or generation that we're looking at when we look at the book of Ruth. All we have to do for most of us is look to the page immediately to the left or maybe a few pages to the left there and look at the very last verse of the book of Judges. And what does it say? The very last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21 verse 25, says that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if you had not read the rest of the book of Judges and just came to this one verse by itself, you might be deceived into thinking that this was a good thing. Hey, there was no king, no one telling anybody what to do, and they're all trying to do the right thing. But that is not what this verse is telling us. In fact, this verse is like a... I don't want to say an anthem. It's more like this dirge that comes over and over again in the book of Judges. That It's this foreboding sort of lamenting song that is sung throughout the book of Judges. Judges 17.6. Let's see if the words are familiar. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right. In their own eyes. Sound familiar? Literally word for word what we just read. Again in chapter 18 verse 1. This lament in those days there was no king in Israel. But here is the lament. Here is the irony in that lament. While there was no physical king ruling on a throne in the nation state of Israel. Let me ask you a question church. Was there a king in Israel in the days of the judges? Yes, there was. It was Jehovah. It was God. It was Yahweh. He was the king in Israel. There was a king in Israel. And it was God. God was king. King over Israel. Indeed, as Zechariah 14.9 confesses, king over all the earth. But the reason there was no king in Israel is because Israel had rejected God. As their king. And so God gave them judges. Why did he give them judges? He gave them judges because he had already given them his law. And they had transgressed his law. They had broken their covenant with God. And God gave them judges to call them to repentance. God was the one ruling Israel. Even though they had rejected him as their hashtag not my king. Okay? Was God still king in Israel? Yes, he was. He was ruling 
And we see his rule in the next words of verse 1 of the first chapter of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This is not happenstance. This is not just a, a circumstance of that day. The, the writer here, again, we don't know who the author of the book of Ruth is. Many believe it was Samuel. That's likely to be the case. Perhaps Solomon. We don't know. It could be someone else. We don't know. But here, the Holy Spirit is telling us something about what was going on. That though there was no physical king in Israel, God was still king. He was still ruling. And we see his rule in the way of discipline. How, you say? Through the famine. There was a famine in the land. This is not coincidence. Not when the king of all the earth is ruling the nation. Turn, if you will, to Leviticus chapter 26. So that we can make sure that this is not just the ravings of a lunatic preacher this morning. <clears throat> in case you didn't know, your preacher is a lunatic. All right. Leviticus chapter 26, and we're going to read this whole thing this morning. You shall not make idols for yourselves. This is God giving the law to the nation of Israel. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now, I want you to see that. What is the reason that God gives for the standard of holiness that he's calling his people to live up to? It's, his, it's himself. He's basing the onus and the motivation and the reason for why they are not to do this. Not because it's bad. Not because if you do these things, bad things will happen. He says, I am the Lord. I am holy. Therefore, do not do this. I am the Lord. Then look at verse 3. What will happen? What will happen if they honor the name and the righteousness and the holiness and the honor of their God? He says, if you will walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then... Now, look at that. This is law. This is law. If, then. That's law. If you will, then I will give you your reins in their season... And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full. This is important. Eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid." 
And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you, listen to this, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. Is this a bit of a contrast to the first five verses in the book of Ruth? Absolutely. In the first five verses of the book of Ruth, we see a barren wasteland, which means what? The rains have not come in their season. The fruit has not yielded its increase. The trees have stopped producing their fruit, and there is no bread in the land. This hasn't happened. This is a total contrast. Look at verse 9. I will turn to you. I will make you fruitful. This isn't just talking about food here. This is talking about children. This is talking about your children's children and your children's children's children and your children's 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 children. And yet in the book of Ruth we see barrenness. I will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. That's called feasting. We don't see that in the first five verses of the book of Ruth. And then listen to this. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I've freed you. I've redeemed you. This is the picture of redemption in the Old Testament is God redeeming the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now let's just make sure that we're not drawing false conclusions here. This was an if then. If you obey, these wonderful blessings will follow. What about if you disobey? Let's just make sure we're clear here. Verse 14. Is it okay if we read our Bibles this morning? Is that all right? Okay, just making sure. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. Colon. You ready? I will visit you with panic. We haven't even got to the physical stuff yet. Literally, God is saying, I will strike terror in your hearts. I'll visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies." 
Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. Do you see the contrast here? Everything that I will do for you if you obey me, I will not only remove for you, but give you the absolute opposite of those things. And if by this discipline, verse 23... You are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me. Then I also will walk contrary to you. What is it like? What is it like to hear the God of heaven say, I will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Listen to this. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. Again, what is, what is this vengeance about? I am the Lord. I am a jealous God who will not share my glory with another. Here, the Lord is going to rain vengeance for His namesake. And He says, And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread... Ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, hear this, this continued rebellion, you, even after all this you still won't listen to me. But walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. You see the escalation. God brings... Discipline. There's opportunity for the people to repent. But they continue stubborn in their ways. They continue to walk contrary to His will and His way. And so what does God say? It's time to increase. It's time to turn up the heat. And He gives opportunity again for the people to listen. For them to heed His discipline. And again, they're stubborn and God continues to escalate the discipline. Each time giving opportunity for them to repent. And still we see what God will do if they will not repent. I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat 
the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it will, shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into your hearts, into their hearts, in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. And they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another, as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. What did we see happening? In the first few verses of the book of Ruth, we see famine, we see barrenness, and we see the land of the enemies of Israel eating up Elimelech and his two sons. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. The starkness that we see in the first few verses of the book of Ruth is not just merely coincidental. It's not just merely that at that time there happened to be a famine. This is the discipline of the Lord upon his people. It is the king of all the earth who has been rejected in the land of Israel, ruling Israel through discipline. But listen here, Leviticus 26, verses 40 through the end of the chapter. Even after all that, even after the Lord says, I will walk contrary to you in fury. My soul shall abhor you, says the Lord. Even after all of that, what does God say? Verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then, now that's an if-then that I like, then I will remember my covenant 
with Jacob. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them to enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For why? For why? For I am the Lord their God. Even His mercy rests on His eternal character. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between Himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. The covenant of works. Here we see explicitly what God has said. And we see explicitly that God would not allow their disobedience to go unpunished. So that when we get to the book of Judges and then to the book of Ruth, and we read the end of the book of Judges and we see that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we read the next verse in our Bibles, verse 1 of the first chapter of the book of Ruth. And we see in the days when Judges ruled there was a famine in the land. It should not escape us that what was happening here was the judgment and the discipline of the Lord against a disobedient people. Do you see that? Here at the beginning of the book of Ruth, God is disciplining His people who have abandoned the covenant and this has brought famine into the land. And immediately, what do we see? We see immediately, still in verse number one, that there was a man, a man of Bethlehem in Judah, who what? Well, it says, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. But what's really going on there? He was running, he's fleeing discipline, he is fleeing. The discipline of the Lord. Church, let me tell you. You cannot outrun the discipline of the Lord. I remember a verse that I had to memorize when I myself was quite disobedient. A verse that my parents made me memorize. Be sure your sin will find you out. In other words, there's nowhere to run. If you are going to choose to remain disobedient to the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, 
will hunt you down. And can I tell you that you should praise God for that fact? Because let me tell you what is more scary than God chasing down his children and disciplining them. Can I tell you what is, what is more fearful than that? Is being abandoned to your own desires. That is more fearful than the discipline of the Lord. The same thing that the children of Israel were supposed to understand about the discipline of the Lord, we are supposed to understand about the discipline of the Lord. And what is that? That the Lord disciplines those He loves. That His discipline legitimizes them. It shows that they are legitimate children. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 4 through 11. The preacher talking about the discipline of the Lord. We read this just a couple of weeks ago. In your struggle against sin, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And what's the exhortation? My son, do not regard lightly. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. And what does it say? It is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields. What does it do? It yields. What does discipline do? It yields. It brings increase. It brings an increase of what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who who have been trained by it. Is it not interesting? Is it not interesting that God would give to his people in Israel? Okay, we're talking about the nation state of Israel. Is it not interesting that he would give to them a physical sign of the increase of fruit in their land according to the increase of the fruit of righteousness in their hearts. That the very food and fruit that the land produced would be a daily and continual reminder to them of what God was calling 
for them to produce, which was the fruit of righteousness. And yet here in verse 1, after the warning of the Lord, if you continue, if you continue, if you continue to harden your hearts and turn from my ways, then I'm going to visit your land with pestilence, disease, with famine, with sword, with beasts and panic and terror. Rather than seeing a righteous man stand up in Bethlehem and say, guys, guys, look around you. The land is barren because our hearts are barren. Rather, we see a man who doesn't stand up and lead his family or his clan or his people to repentance, but rather, what does he do? He turns and he runs. He turns and he runs. Now listen, we just read, all discipline is painful. It's not pleasant. But in the midst of that discipline, what were the people of God supposed to remember? They were supposed to remember verse 40 of chapter 26 of Leviticus. If they confess their iniquity. If they confess their iniquity, that's what they were supposed to remember. But instead of enduring and accepting the discipline of the Lord... We see a man turning and leading his clan, his people, his brothers, his sisters, his mothers, fathers. Instead of leading them in repentance, we see him leading his family. Not turning towards the Lord, but rather turning and facing and sojourning into a pagan land. And where do they go? They sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, there's four sides to anything. They could have faced any direction and walked in any direction. But they chose Moab. They chose Moab. Do you know where Moab came from? Go to Genesis chapter 19. Do you remember Abraham's nephew Lot? Do you remember how Abraham and Lot kind of went up and surveyed the land and Lot kind of looked and he saw this really lush green land where everyone seemed prosperous, land where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Do you remember how Lot went there and took his family? Do you remember how God rained down judgment and wrath on that place and Lot fled for his life in just the nick of time? Not because he was righteous, but because Abraham begged and interceded for him. Do you remember how his wife, running from that place, rather than trusting the Lord in her heart, turned again towards Sodom and Gomorrah and was turned into a pillar of salt? Usually that's where we kind of leave the story off, because the next part of it's not pleasant. 
But the story actually continues in Genesis chapter 19, verse number 30. It says, Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Lot not have an uncle that loved him? Did Lot not have an uncle that God had made extremely prosperous? Did, not, did Lot not have an uncle that had actually beseeched the God of heaven for his life? And was he not spared? Did Lot not have the angel of the Lord show up at his house and lead him out of Sodom and Gomorrah? And yet here we see like Elimelech, him running and hiding rather than going to a place of refuge. And so, rather than leading his daughters to a place of safety, where he could, as every good father should, help his daughters find husbands, instead he hides out in the hills, in the caves, above the land of Zor. And what happens? The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And what do we see happen as the story unfolds? That the progeny of this sinful and incestuous relationship with Lot produces two Tribes of people who will literally become thorns in the side of the children of Israel. Not only bringing trouble to their borders, but literally by their women leading them into sin. Numbers 22 through 25 tell the story of the prophet Balaam with the king of Moab, Balak. Where Balak calls Balaam to curse the people of God. You know the story of the talking donkey and all that went on there. But do you know that while Balaam did not verbally curse the people of Israel. He showed Balak 
how he might overcome them. And that was by tempting them with the daughters of Moab. So much so that Numbers 25 says that the children of Israel began to prostitute themselves with the daughters of Moab. And that they were the ones who brought the idols of Baal into the nation of Israel. And the people of Israel began to bow down and worship the idols of Baal. And in Numbers 25, we see God inflicting the people with a plague because of this prostituting of themselves with the daughters of Moab and killed 24,000 people. Moral of the story? You've heard the old adage. That's a bunch of bunk, but anyways. Don't drink or cuss or chew or date girls that do, right? Well, the moral of this story is don't go to Moab. Moab is bad news, and don't let your boys date girls from Moab too, right? Like, don't do it. It's not okay. And that was kind of the attitude of the people. You might bring other people in from foreign lands that they could marry your sons, but not Moab. Not Moab. But Elimelech turns his face towards Moab and leads his family right into pagan territory. And what happens? They take Moabite wives. Why? Because when you lead your family into pagan land, your sons will take pagan wives. Literally, we have here a picture of apostasy. It is apostasy. Elimelech is abandoning his God and his promises, facing pagan land and taking his family to that place. An apostate is someone who abandons the faith, turns away from God, and that's exactly what we see Elimelech doing. The name of that man, Elimelech, And this is where the irony of this story begins. Why? Because the name Elimelech means literally, my God is king. My God is king. Remember, in the time of the judges where there was no king in Israel. And we've already confessed together, there was a king in Israel. And who was it? It was God. And here is Elimelech, whose parents even gave him a reminder in his name of what he should do in this time of famine. 
return to the God who is his king. Elimelech turns away from God. Not only that, not only was my God who is king, named my God who is king, where is he from? He's from Bethlehem. And what does Bethlehem mean? House of bread. Here is this man named my God who is king from the house of bread living in famine amongst a people who had a God who said to them, but if you will confess, I will relent. But rather than confessing, rather than repenting, he flees discipline and journeys into the land of Moab. His name meant, my God is king. But God was not Elimelech's king. And here we see in the first five verses of the book of Ruth that the house of bread was empty. The house of bread was empty. So the man whose name is my God is king has two sons. And he names them Malon and Chilion which literally mean illness and destruction. Illness and destruction. And Elimelech, my God who is king, and his sons Malon and Chilion, illness and destruction, all die outside of the promised land, which leads us into verse 5. This stark picture of Naomi, whose name means sweet. Sweet. And what does it say in verse 5? That she was left without. That she was left without. Was left without her two sons and her husband, but the, the picture that the writer is giving us in this short story is a woman who was left without. Literally, it's a picture, as we have said, of barrenness, of a barren wasteland. This woman is left without. This church is the outcome of turning away from the God who is king over all the earth. And again, we see the stage set for the rest of the story as Naomi is brought from a place of barrenness and emptiness. So what do we do with this? I mean, it's a lot of interesting information. It's some interesting tidbits. Oh, the names. Oh, wow, my God is king. Illness, destruction. That's cool stuff. It's fun to read that, to see that, to unpack that. But what about us this morning? Well, it may be it may be that she was left without describes the state of your story this morning. It may be that you are in a place 
today where void describes the state of your heart and the state of your worship of God. And if that's the case, if if what describes the state of your heart and your worship of God this morning is, is void, then I want to remind you of the first couple verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. But the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And that word hovered in our English language is a word picture in Hebrew that means incubating. The Spirit was incubating over the formless void of the earth. And God spoke. And life came. Perhaps this morning, void is what describes the state of your heart and your worship for God. But I want to remind you that it doesn't have to remain that way. It doesn't have to remain that way. God wants to bring you from a place of emptiness, from void to a place of fullness, even as we will ultimately see him do for Naomi. But he wants to fill you not with material blessings, not with physical bread. He wants to fill you with Christ, with himself, with his spirit. He wants to fill you with his spirit. Remember, what is the rule of God about? Go back to Leviticus 26. Look at verses 11 through 13. What is the rule of God about? What is all these rules? What is, what is this all about? What was God trying and seeking to accomplish? Verses 11 through 13 of Leviticus 26. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. This is what the rule of God is about. It's about a God who walks in the cool of the morning with his people. It's about a return to the communion that we were always meant to have with God. He frees us, he redeems us, verse 13 there, so that we might have communion with him. Guess what? We're about to walk into communion right now. This time of physical communion where we will eat bread and drink wine, the body and the blood of the Lord. A reminder to us today that God seeks communion with his people. Why is famine, why is famine the thing that is threatened for disobedience to God's law? Well, because it's really, it's really horrible to be hungry. Is that why? 
Is that why famine is the thing? No, let me tell you why famine is the thing. Famine is the thing because famine represents a break in communion with God. Famine represents a break in communion with God. And the same God of Leviticus is the same God we serve here today. He has not changed, nor can He. And He has not altered His holiness in any way. He does not wink, even today, He does not wink at our sin or put up with it forever, but has still promised to discipline His people and bring them to holiness. But one thing has changed, church. The covenant that was broken by the people in the book of Judges has been kept and upheld by Jesus Christ. And we have been moved and transferred from the covenant of works whereby we must work and earn to receive the blessing listed here in Leviticus 26. And we have been placed under the covenant of grace where Jesus has already earned for us and received the well done good and faithful servant from the Father. And we have now been invited into communion with God, not upon the basis of our own works, but rather upon the basis of the works of Christ for us. The works of Christ for us and on our behalf. He worked and fulfilled the covenant in our place. The new covenant. The covenant that Jeremiah 31 talks about. When God speaks through the prophet and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Praise God. Would you stand with me this morning? Church, we are still called to be holy. But that holiness is given to us by Christ. We are still called to be righteous, but that righteousness is given to us by Christ. And His grace abounds for sinners who call upon the name of the Lord and believe into Him for salvation and forgiveness. Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means. Therefore, let us confess our sins and be truly sorry and repentant and seek to amend our ways and so receive from Him grace upon grace. Amen. Father, thank you for this morning.
Thank you for this word and this reminder to us that though you are a holy and righteous God, and though we are sinners, you have prepared a way for us to be brought from emptiness and barrenness in a state of complete void to a place of fullness as you fill us with your spirit. Fill us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.